0: Massive thank you, as always, to our top-tier patron Sarah Turner. It's Not Just In Your Head is hosted by psychotherapist Dr. Harriet Fraud, substance use disorder counsellor Ekoi Hero, and myself, the editor and producer, Liam Tate. This podcast is entirely funded by listeners, and as the famous meme states, we are critiquing capitalism because we are forced to participate in it in order to survive. So... If you can afford to give, then your contribution will ensure that we can keep making the show. However, if you can't, then please just leave a review on your podcast platform of choice. Tell your friends about us and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Reddit, or YouTube. Massive thank you as always to Elle for organizing our monthly reading groups and episode discussions, which you, dear listener, can join in too. Just head over to our Eventbrite page, and the link is in the show notes.
1: In the mental health field, too often, we've made it seem as if it's just in your, heads, just in your head. If
2: the landlord can hijack the rent by 20%. That impacts people's mental health. We can't
1: have a profit-driven mental health care system if we want our people to be connected and healthy.
2: Yeah,
0: it's a really fascinating book. It and is. The thing I was saying to Harriet just before the beginning of the call was, whether it's intentional or not, it's almost like a manifesto for belonging. Because you're really making the case for essentially not dismissing aspects of spirituality or religion. Uh, Yeah, I don't know if you wanted to, if you had an official blurb about yourself.
2: I'm Graham. Now I'm pretty much just writing. That's the main thing I'm doing. But I have come out of doing sort of activism in the past around housing and mental health particularly. And that sort of led into this kind of work I'm doing now that sort of tries to combine thinking strategically and like about how we can actually make material change on a collective level but also trying to integrate more about the body and the mind and not forgetting the individual in the collective struggle so yeah I really like what you said But. By the way, you're calling it a manifesto for belonging. I might have to steal that as a quote.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, go for it. The book is called Red Enlightenment on Socialism, Science and Spirituality. Perhaps for the uninitiated, maybe there's maybe some sort of brief overview of what the Enlightenment was, maybe what sucked about it, what's worth saving and what Red Enlightenment actually is.
2: Yeah. And with the Enlightenment, we're talking about so this intellectual movement over the 17th, 18th centuries that remains celebrated among liberals and, to some extent, conservatives, but has largely become quite maligned on the left, but with very good reasons, because many Enlightenment figures were tied up with colonialism, imperialism, and various things that we today are very, that the left is very clear and opposing. What I feel that we miss is we end up seeing the Enlightenment as this single kind of homogenous bad thing, or just a thing to be completely ignored, completely moved away from, rather than seeing it as this kind of multifaceted phenomenon that had lots of different potential directions that it could move in and then lots, lots of sort of diversity within it. And to still see the Enlightenment as actually the basis for a lot of later progressive and revolutionary thought and action, as well as just conservative... Two polar opposite figures you could think of is John Locke often comes up, a central Enlightenment, European Enlightenment figure, that he was actually a colonial administrator himself, and his philosophy was in some ways used to justify the actual material kind of activity of colonialism. And that's the kind of thing that it's focused on. But there are also figures around the Haitian Revolution, for example, who drew on Enlightenment philosophy and yet used that to ends that even today we still see it as revolutionary, the first successful slave revolution led by uh, Toussaint Louverture. I have to apologize if I got my pronunciation wrong, but he was very much, he was a former slave and he was influenced by Enlightenment philosophy. It may well be that the more kind of, oppressive stuff may have won out that doesn't mean that we can't go back and learn things from it and draw things from it in more than just a purely critical and dismissive way so that's the sort of the historical sort of grounding to the book but it doesn't really stay in that that, that sort of historical critique for very long it's more about the notion of enlightenment itself as a concept can we make use of that today And what I find very useful about the term enlightenment is the way that it can cross over different discourses, both the intellectual in terms of the European enlightenment and also how the term is used to talk about spiritual enlightenment as well. And whilst, of course, we must be critical of how European culture has, how it's looked at what it calls Eastern spirituality and things like this and how they've been integrated into like New Age movements and things. At the same time, there is a potential there for actually learning about different systems of thought, different philosophies that can be taken as seriously as European philosophy. And in the same way that figures like Marx were post-Enlightenment figures that were drawing from European modes of thought, we can also find ways of drawing influence from all kinds of different philosophies from across the world throughout history, whether it's Chinese, Indian, African, Native American, Islamic. There is such a wealth of, of philosophy that is basically ignored by Western thinkers in general, but also by the left. And I think there's a, there's a huge gap there where on the one hand, the left wants to talk about decolonizing, decolonizing thought and decolonizing education and stuff like this. But there seems to be very little in the way of actually engaging creatively and positively with modes of thought outside of Western academia. And so I'm basically like throwing out lots of different kind of ideas just to try and, try and influence anyone to grab onto one of these threads and just see where it leads. Marx drew from... Aristotle and Heraclitus, two of his favourite philosophers, why can't we draw from Dharma Curti or uh, orby or any any just countless different figures who are saying in many ways very similar things about the inherent process of reality and things like this, which there are moments of sort of synchronization between things that we're more familiar with and these very well, at least to the typical sort of European, American, Western kind of person is unfamiliar modes of thought yeah so hopefully, hopefully in the book there are these I've put little breadcrumb trails that other people can then take off in new directions
1: and the direction that moved me the most and I should say that I was a founding mother of the women's liberation movement and have been an activist in civil rights and other things is that the union movement the women's movement the civil rights movement all included music and they all included a spiritual element of we will overcome together. We are together, as Liam says so poetically, a manifesto of belonging to a connected group. And that's what the 12-step programs give you, although they're often God-ridden. The idea is a higher power, and the higher power of our connection is the power to change the world. And I think because the left has been so opposed to the retrograde and divisive elements of formal religion, we've eschewed spirituality to our detriment. Because any really successful mass movement includes that. The idea that you are not limited to your own little self is brilliant and very important to a sense of belonging because even the way Eastern philosophy is used in the United States, it's often to go inward and like in India, you step over the dead to get to your house because they died on the street that night and you're supposed to dissociate from that. That There is this lack of sense of an international, national and local community in which you are fulfilled as a member and a belonging member. And I think it's crucial, the sense of something bigger than you and connection with people through it is what sustains people. And so I think what you're bringing up is an urgent need of the left. We need the songs. We need the music, we need the dances, we need the sense of awe at our own united power, which can usurp the idea of one guy, Jesus, as conveyed by an authority. It's a a very much broader connection.
0: There's a quote you've got, which is, socialism is necessary but not sufficient. And then you you have this thing about that our bodies unconsciously tend towards desiring religion. Obviously, there's some people who've had terrible religious experiences who'll so be like, no, they don't. <laughs> but I'm wondering, yeah, what, I guess, what is that? What is it that pushes us towards religion or spirituality? Because you make this point that, like, certainly in the UK, <clears throat> which is obviously very different from America, the, was it the census data this idea of most people don't actually put atheists there's this spiritual but not religious right so there's clearly that either it's just history and society or that there's an impulse towards it what do you think that is and i guess maybe do you think it's worth unpacking different definitions of religion and spirituality
2: yeah, so thank you, first of all. You, I was scribbling as you were going along and I was writing lots of little notes and it's just a huge mess now, so I'll just <laughs> end up rambling. But yeah, on, on a you know, tending towards desiring religion, The first of all, the word tending is quite important there because thinking on the collective human level, not dismissing anyone who has, is violently opposed to, on a personal level, Organized religion, particularly based on their negative experiences of it, saying that if we look at human beings generally over like the patterns that tend to occur, I think it's hard to deny that human beings tend towards religion or wanting, needing something like religion.
1: Can you say what aspects of the religion they tend toward? Because I know the orthodoxy has to be separated out and they may tend toward that what it would be worth more understanding on my part anyway.
2: Yeah, so it's so there are a number of different things there are a number of different functions that religion fulfills quite neatly. Now it doesn't necessarily need to be something that is recognizable as a religion that most people would call a religion. but I think it's the fact that religion fulfills a lot of the things that people need like together in a sort of a cohesive kind of way, in a way that nothing else that we have really does. One of them is, and I can't actually remember if I end up using this term in the book. I used it in an earlier draft and in the podcast I did, the notion of ontological security. R.D. Lang, I believe it is. This notion that to be able to act, to to be able to understand the surroundings and to to basically be productive and stable. We need a sort of a stable understanding of what reality is and what is in reality, we have, a, have to have sort of a stable sense of where things have come from, where we're coming from, how we should be acting and why we should be acting and where we're ultimately going. This idea that, that there's a, we're all always constantly tied up in a sort of a past and a future as well as the present in every moment. And if you lose those sort of things and you can lose a sense of why you're even living, what the purpose is of what you're doing, who you are, you're going to lose motivation to actually be able to do anything. And so one thing that religion does is it provides that kind of ontological security It gives you a sense of all oh, well, this, is how reality came about. This is what it all means. This is how I feel I should act because of all of this, and all of these teachings that I'm sort of responding to and this community that I'm a part of. And that is also a huge thing before I start to sound like it's so much about just belief in your head It's also a big thing about forming communities that share these beliefs as well and that share practices with you and that you can all reproduce them together and that's another huge thing that that religion does that often gets missed out of the whole conversation. A lot of people, whether they're on the left or the right, that have this kind of idea that religion should be opposed in this way that we can basically convince people out of it by arguing them about the logic of believing in a god or a heaven or a spirit world or anything like this and as though you can like rationalize someone out of their belief you might be able to sow some seeds to change someone's mind about certain things over a long period of time but much more powerful is the actual kind of community aspect of religion that's one of the reasons why it continues to be reproduced and you can't convince someone out of loving people (laughs) like and feeling strong emotions for the people around them and that they they feel some sort of connection with at least you can't do that on any on on any sort of like scalable any kind of scalable way it's not really a solution to the problems that people associate with religion to try and convince people out of it so that would be the approach I take to it is that we should be trying to find ways to create dialogues. Like on the one hand, presuming an audience here who are secular leftists that don't necessarily want any kind of like religious belief, they're not going to convert to Christianity or anything. I'm still arguing with them, even if you don't even have your own spiritual practice, at the very least, the left needs to actually be able to engage with people Without just point blank dismissing the notion of religion and try to find ways into conversations, try to find existing religious people on the left, and there are plenty of them, try and find organizations and actually create movements that integrate religious people into them, rather than saying, oh, religion is this conservative thing, we'll let conservatives deal with that, because that is just, that is an open goal, allowing the right to take religion an absolute massive own goal but also in staying just on the <clears throat> tending to desiring religion I think on the sort of more kind of on that sort of like metaphysical kind of level which is something that the left really I think ignores because you might say the left is quite good at having its own sort of sense of a past present and future we all talk about <clears throat> revolutionary heroes and things like this we'll talk about comradeship as a form of ethic and obviously ideas like socialism and communism with this sort of idea of the future but what i would say about all that is that's all great and that's all something that i'm trying to integrate into sort of the notion of spirituality that i'm putting forward but i also think that with a spirituality you are generally thinking in terms of the fabric of reality itself and uh, it can help you to feel to give you a place to a sense of place in the universe which is a little bit different to a sense of place within a community i think both are actually really important and if we just cut out everything that we might think of as spiritual and focus purely on more sort of collective matters on what the left considers materialism then we again we end up seeding a huge ground a huge sort of like ethical spiritual ground To conservatives, who are often much more happy to talk about philosophy and art and things divorced from, or not divorced from, but just not purely in the service of a critique of capitalism and things like this. I think we need to be able to integrate a critique of capitalism, but also sometimes we might just want to talk about what is life, what is reality, what is the question of what is the meaning of life is for good reason, one of the most sought-after questions. Like It's the question that always comes up again and again because people want to think about that kind of stuff. And I don't think the left gives any kind of answer to those sort of things, whereas the right tries to. And that's one of the ways that we are, again, seeding a certain ground to the right that we could have more activity in.
1: I think that ontologically, most Americans are really divorced from religion. Religion is a fading force in the United States. If they go to church, they go to church on big holidays for Jews, Passover, Rosh Hashanah, or Christians, Easter and Christmas. And they do this in a pro forma way out of tradition, but not out of a sense that they are in a community because they do very little communal, even though they may sing hymns. I think that Martin Luther King tried to address that when he spoke to the the shoreline the dock workers in California and saying that now a union is the closest way we can to changing ourselves and changing our country because I think what he was intimating is a class struggle which is the employee class versus the employer class, which the United States, certainly it's true in the United States, has a solidarity and a connection with the future that's bright and better and a kind of dream that unites all of us and that since in a union, black and white men and women are together, and this was after the Longshoremen's Union allowed Blacks. Before that, Blacks were strikebreakers. But then they welcomed Blacks and won their strikes. But there, he was trying to say that he has a dream, which is spiritual, which is of a better world. And I think that's something that the left has neglected. And that Americans' problem is overwhelming loneliness and disconnection. And feeling connected to other people and the world and its possibilities is a spiritual matter that we would need to include, and we haven't. And do you have any ways that we could do that? Martin Luther King presented a way, the Civil Rights Movement presented a way with their songs, and their songs that they sang even as they were being beaten. But do you have... Sort of guidance for this our splintered and disconnected left in finding a spiritual connection that's compelling?
2: I'm always a little wary about handing out like very specific advice to other people organizing. I think it's more a question of urging people to think about these things and to try and find ways in their particular context that they can think more about the body and they can think more about maybe what communities or identities of like religious identities in a sense we're not engaging with i do think the one that you you've mentioned a few times song is actually i think it's a really great one because even anyone that is in any way resistant to the notion of spirituality all of the stuff that i'm arguing for they could still take on board even if they remained like uncomfortable with the word we're still talking about finding new embodied practices that's what i I, I keep on putting at the centre of what I'm calling spirituality as embodied practice. It's not just about thinking certain things, it's about doing certain things and finding ways that we can do in, have these embodied practices that we do individually and we do collectively. And singing is a fantastic one. The left already has a small kind of tradition of, we, we do sing at marches and there are here and there you'll find socialist choirs, but there are... Just basically encouraging people to think of what other ways that we can integrate things like singing into our practice, whether it's singing collectively, like just meeting up for the fun of it, or <clears throat> whether we're actually writing music together and improvising music together. What context can we do this in? How do we integrate politics into things like music festivals and things like this? How do we, rather than having this as just something dry and intellectual that's cut off from all like other? cultural forms how do we integrate art making in general into our politics and you don't necessarily need to say to use the term spirituality and I guess this might might be a good place to to say how I'm defining spirituality because it is quite a it can be quite a vague word it can be used in lots of different ways but for me spirituality is this point at where you have an understanding of of what reality is or maybe not understanding of the word of it but you have these ideas about the unseen world beyond your immediate perception. That's why I call this the metaphysical aspect that relates to how we think we should be acting in the world, both in this moment or and overall, over a longer path. So it's got an ethical element. But again, as I say, it's not just about having these sort of metaphysical ideas and ethical principles, but it's actually about embodying them in action and in Repeated action in communal action, and all of that happens in religion. It can happen outside of religion. Religion can even exist without some of those things happening. Like you say, the the many people who consider themselves religious who aren't actually particularly spiritual at all, that maybe aren't practicing very regularly, that aren't part of a close community, and so we can have both the notion of people being spiritual but not religious, but also religious without being very spiritual and yes, it's more about like i say, not worrying too much about whether it is or is not spirituality it's more about are will thinking in these general terms about our place in reality how we're supposed to be acting and in embodying it there was something oh yes that was what i was going to say this notion of being in community as well obviously again the word community can have lots of different sort of senses But even I think when someone isn't necessarily going to church very often, they might not have much contact with other believers. If they are self-identifying as this kind of collective thing, a Christian or what have you, you still have these kind of imagined communities, as Benedict Anderson called it, where you are, you're part of this kind of larger unseen kind of community where you are, you see yourself as belonging. And it's one of the ways in which nationalism actually is similar to to spirituality, like typically in a kind of a reactionary kind of way, because with nationalism, you do have this sense of ontological security where you're part of a collective that you're supposed to act in a certain way. And there can even be embodied practices and embodiment in, in, in symbols and clothing and jubilees and all sorts of things, celebrating the queen's birthday and that can end up functioning as a kind of spirituality or taking the place of a spirituality. So what's another thing that's important to to stress is though although I'm saying I'm saying we need to engage with religion and think about how we can integrate spirituality on the left, spirituality in and of itself is not necessarily a good thing. It can go in any sort of direction. It can be extremely reactionary or it can be revolutionary and it can be all over the place.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting, actually, in Harriet's example, when you're talking about unions and you're talking about this fading force of religion in America, when you think of union, say, versus church, the union, to my mind, is practicalities, whereas the church is, yes, it's community, just like a union would be, but it's about existentialism, right? I'm not sure if you go to the union meeting to consider those big questions that you were talking about earlier on. What is the meaning of life? Grappling with those big questions is, yeah, in the context of organizing your workplace, how those two sit together is an interesting issue because maybe, I don't know if those two things are compatible, but it is. But you would the where there is compatibility is in what you were saying earlier about how should one be in the world or how should one act? And a lot of the time, if you're part of the union, it's because you're aware that essentially you're being slighted to some degree, you're being ripped off, and that is not how to act in the world. So that becomes the avenue in which you can open up those questions, right? What is a good way to live and all the values that might come with that?
1: Yeah, I think that's important because I think if you look at a very highly organized church in the United States, the Catholic Church, it gave up on monitoring the whole field of capitalism. It basically tries to monitor your sexuality, but not what you do in business and how you cheat people. And if you look at Orthodox Judaism, which is, at least in New York, there's constant stabbings of diamond dealers in the Orthodox community, killing one another, and so on. But they do kiss the mezuzah, which is the poor, their Bible on before they go in the door, that there's a sense that morally it's abandoned one of the biggest forces in the United States, which is capitalism, how to make money, how to succeed in the world, and just concentrates on sexuality because it doesn't dare touch The world of business, which is everywhere in the United States, whereas the union movement, as with its spiritual element that Martin Luther King wrote about, talks about the spirit of unity between the workers of the world to make a better world. And that God's on their side. Everybody claims God's on their side. And that's in direct contrast to what the comedian Carlin said God will strike me dead if I don't believe in me okay god let's see and strike me dead i don't believe in you and of course nothing happens but i think what's happened in america is that there is no vision holding people together except the burgeoning union movement because the spiritual movement has become for profit in these individualist practices yeah linking that back into what we were saying about what actually would it he-
2: involved doing. And as you were saying, Liam, it it might be difficult to imagine integrating some sort of spiritual practice into existing things in the sense of when you're gathering a group of people in a, a housing union to go to a landlord and hand them demands you don't necessarily want there and then to stop and have a group prayer or do have a, a mindfulness session in their, the landlord's office or anything like that. That'd be quite funny, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. quite a good direct action. But I don't think that's necessarily what... it's. I think it's more a case of, yeah, making those links between groups. It can be anything from just having a reading group. Your revolutionary sort of organization, having a reading group is a thing that's a common embodied practice already. You get a bunch of different people into a room, and you'll share a book. And it doesn't—you don't just need to do that with revolutionary texts. Why not have a conversation about how we might get people reading some Roland Boer about religion and Marxism, and have, talk about those those kind of connections? But on a more on a wider level, I think it is more about making links between organisations, trying to find like I say, existing leftist kind of Christian groups and supporting them to grow and to work together. So you've got more direct relations between unions, between religious groups. And not being in the US, so I don't really know most of the groups, but I, used, I see some around like the Institution for Christian Socialism and groups like this. There's a lot of podcasts now and there's a sort of a growing sort of network of particularly Christian leftists in America who well, are obviously still small next to the huge particularly evangelical right but they are a sort of a growing presence they're growing in confidence and i think atheist leftists need to stop dismissing them and actually see them as part of a movement it's not to say you have to agree with absolutely everything and there will be moments where there're there are going to be friction but that's a left as it is and i think
0: yeah yeah Trump, and you do yeah. make the you do make the case for those Sort of atheist readers, I guess, listeners in this context, that you should be curious, like, why the world over for human history does religion occur again and again? Why is it something that is an instinct, as it were? And you do outline kind of a scientific perspective, maybe, of why religious instinct occurs, which is very much about a survival thing,
2: right? I think the thing you're thinking of was when I was talking about the perception of agency outside ourselves and how we have to be able to imagine a world beyond our immediate perception. We, if we simply thought that all that exists is what I can see right now, then we wouldn't be able to have a sort of a stable conception of reality at all. I have to imagine that there is a world beyond this wall or these four walls that I'm sitting within. And so we're always constantly in the back of our minds have this unseen world around us. We also constantly are predicting. We're always predicting movement. If I see something, if I see a car moving in front of me or if I see a ball moving in front of me, I already have a percept- like a pre-perception of where something is going to be, what it's doing. And when this tie- is tied in with the notion of animacy, when we understand that there are beings in the world that are self-propelling to some extent, they haven't been kicked by someone, they're not being driven by someone, they are driving themselves. We come to try to, we're constantly trying to identify this agency in the world around us, being prepared for the being agency, for the things that are happening around us to be the result of something else. And just all of those things together, just constantly being aware of an enormous world beyond our perception, that there is agency that we don't control, that we're constantly looking for faces, we're looking for empathy. It just sets us up for, like I say, it doesn't mean that we are necessarily going to be religious, but the idea of either a god or a series of gods or a spirit world really neatly falls into that way of understanding the world. They can exist beyond our, our immediate perception. They can be agencies. That we, are, that we are maybe not able to perceive, but we're able to perceive the results of their decisions and their actions. It just slots in very neatly. And at the same time, it fulfills all those other things we're talking about in terms of ontological security and community. And so it's just a very neat way of bringing all these things together. And that's one of the reasons why I think even if you've got really great logical arguments, e- even if you take out the community aspect, I think it's highly unlikely we will ever be able to come up with any sort of system that in any consistent, long-term, collective way is anywhere near as powerful as religion is in bringing people together and holding them together. And I think we just have to accept that. I don't think the left anymore should be trying to convert people away from religion. I just don't think it's sensible. I don't think it's going to work. I think it's a waste of time, it's a waste of energy, it damages our movement, it damages the potentials to make links with the people. I think we should very strongly oppose when people are bigoted, we should very strongly oppose when people are reactionary, but none of that is necessary to religion. There are people that use religion in lots of different ways. And so I think just trying to find ways to understand and to have dialogue with religious people. It is a really essential starting point.
0: Yeah, at its worst, in trying to reason someone out of their belief, you're essentially spitting in the face of everything that is potentially meaningful to them. That's yeah, sort a of meaning making system.
1: Also, you, you have to have an alternative meaning, an alternative meaning system, which is one of the things that the left hardly has. Because you can see it around guns in the United States. There have been 102 days since January and there have been 148 mass shootings. So people are aware that things are quite out of control. Mass shootings are shootings where you don't necessarily know the people. You just express rage by killing a bunch of people and shooting at least four. And I think... Around the guns is a good way of understanding this, because on the one hand, you have the right wing evangelicals sending their thoughts and prayers, which amount to a cop out from politicians paid by the National Rifle Association lobbyists to do their bidding. And people are very cynical about that and don't and are deserting the evangelicals, partly because they're caught literally constantly with their pants down and partly because of the hypocrisy of being bought and sold by Trump and by the NRA. On the other hand, you have the movements of people who want to affirm the right to live, which is a moral and spiritual thing that we all are here on earth and we have the right to live and let live together. But I think one of the problems in abandoning some of the negative aspects of organized religion and the way it's been used is abandoning a kind of moral compass about, okay, where does this lead in terms of life on earth, which is a moral arrow, or where does it lead in terms of negating other people's lives on earth? And I think that moral component, which is something that's very strong, was not only in Martin Luther King, but is in a lot of the climate activism, especially with the young climate activists, and has a definite religious aspect without being an organized hierarchical religion. And I think that the left has to affirm that. Like Greta Thunberg has a lot of moral outward rage in her comments. Also, I think religion, at least, from my talking to people who believe in God, it's usually because I have to imagine somebody somewhere cares because Americans feel so abandoned and that nobody cares about their little life. And so the left would have to make everyone know that we all need each other and we have to care because emotional abandonment is the rule in the United States. And I think we could fill that with a left spiritual message, because it's really a vacancy now.
2: Oh yeah, it just maybe think of two things. Like you're saying about that there is actually a need for an alternate system, and not basically just a critique of what exists. In the, in the book, I've mentioned stuff about actually this ties into scientific change as well. People often think of science as moving purely through negation in terms of falsifying a hypothesis. But actually, the collective change of scientific ideas and scientific movements, they might require that falsification, but it also requires a new system of thought, a new series of ideas to take the place of something that's being falsified. Otherwise, ideas actually stay around almost permanently. They can be falsified as much as you want, but if you don't have an alternate system, that doesn't take over. And it's only once you have this new, this new coherent theory or set of theories that you actually see a scientific revolution. I think it's the same in all forms of knowledge. And in our sense, that's right. We can critique religion all we want, but if we're not able to provide something which fulfills the same things for people they're going to keep on believing or they're going to keep on even if their belief is shattered they're going to keep on being a part of that community and they're just going to be even less happy (laughs) so it's not going to get us anywhere and I think this is going back to the the critique of enlightenment this is often tied in with the sort of critique of the notion of humanism and how humanism has tended to overemphasize the human versus say the environment The human's environment, it could end up being a bit individualistic. Sometimes things creep in like silently like white supremacy and patriarchy and favouring educated Europeans and all this sort of stuff. And so I'm totally on board with the critique of humanism in that sense. But I think the abandonment of anything, uh, anything that we could call humanism is a huge mistake. I think we still need to have something that says, we care about each other because we're humans we don't want to dominate other forms of life we don't want to put a certain type of human on a pedestal we want that proper sort of integration with the earth with each other we want to celebrate the diversity of humans as well as the things which make us the same and i think we need a humanism that does all of that i think simply getting rid and purely staying on the, the plane of critiquing humanism and the things that have been done in the name of humanism just leaves, again, a huge gap that needs to be filled with positive content. Whether you call it post-humanism or humanism or whatever you want to call it, I think there needs to be something, like you said, that has that kind of, if you want to call it, a moral core.
0: Yeah, a moral core. Yes, alternate system, right? This is the key point that you have to have some sort of replacement. And the thing that I found really interesting was you talked about constraints versus freedom constraint versus domination because whatever this alternative system is and in this case you're saying it's a sort of spiritual kind of socialism to some degree that price surprise it requires some constraints it's not just like unabashed freedom right
2: yeah, I think this comes into, people have been having this conversation about, again, the right dominates this kind of question of freedom. And this might actually be more of an issue, like, in terms of a discourse in America than it is in the UK, because we don't, we have less of a, the notion of freedom is a little bit less central here, although I think it is, it does still come into to politics. It's a notion that is basically given to the right we the left does not typically touch the notion of freedom it doesn't like it and i think that's a huge mistake and i think that is to do with this this false dichotomy between you're either free or you're constrained and one of the one of the problems with the notion of freedom as it is used by the right is it implies it sneaks in this notion of individual freedom and it implies freedom from any kind of constraint from the world around you what i talk about a lot in the book in terms of our freedom is a frame it in terms of our abilities our powers to do things our powers to act in the world and when you stop thinking of it as a freedom from and thinking of it as a power to then you have to start to think about what creates powers how do we create power and it is actually it. it it almost feels quite contradictory, but we actually create powers, we create new freedoms to do things by certain constraints. We have to constrain certain things to enable us to do other things. So even if we're just thinking about a union, for example, a union is lots of people getting together, often physically in the same place. They are There's a certain constraint in their beliefs, in their goals, in their identity. There's a constraint, even things like, we the, we've got the same name of this organization. Maybe we're wearing the same jersey, or maybe that's not the right term for it, but we're wearing the same clothes when we go on an action, when we go on strike. We, we're, there are all sorts of ways in which we constrain our beliefs, our actions, our, everything we do to create new powers. It's only once we've constrained ourselves in this consensual way that we create collective power. And so if we think of oh, freedom has to be, I'm going to be without any constraint. That's implicitly an individual freedom, an individualist freedom. But collective freedom, we have to think about in terms of, it's not whether or not we're constrained, it's what is constrained, how it's constrained, who is choosing what is constrained. Because there's a difference between me being constrained against my will and me choosing to constrain parts of my life so that I can be more powerful with other people. And I don't think we can be, we can't dismiss the notion of constraint, because basically everything falls apart if we don't have some constraints. It's only by constraining certain things that we create society in any way. It's the only way we can create organisations. It's the only way we can create movements. And so it's a question of where do we place these constraints and how, what, basically, what is the shape of this sort of network of constraints and how are we able to take part in it rather than it being enforced upon us.
0: Yeah, and the bit I found particularly inspiring was about potentials, that in learning, some, learning something new is transformative and creates new potentials, there's a quote. But the, there's a quote you have, a key to Blotcher's utopianism, is his concept of the not yet All of reality is unfinished and contains within it potentials which remain to be actualized. You explore that more in the book. It just becomes more of a, in a way, like a call to arms. Like that, there is this unseen or unknown effect that each of your actions will have, an impact you could have. And that actually, if you're in a really low place or you feel like particularly with sort of the desire to head towards some sort of socialist horizon, right? Like looking at the state of the world as it is now, you could feel pretty defeated or demotivated. But the sort of manner in which you explored the idea of power, but the potential of your actions essentially can snowball because, and this is something that isn't really maybe discussed enough, is that, We live in a complex system, right? And that there is the systems thinking shows that there's always these feedback loops, feedback mechanisms. So, yeah, I don't know if you wanted to talk, if that sort of jogged anything that maybe you wanted to talk about in terms of potentials.
2: Yeah, going back to what we were saying about presenting like a positive alternative, one of the things that Mark Fisher talked about in this notion of capitalist realism, there's basically the, the sort of the ontology of capitalism which is clinging on even though it's being negated by by everything we're seeing it's falling apart there isn't a clear consistent alternative yes we may feel we have a, a clear alternative but there isn't one that has become hegemonic and that is because i think we need to articulate in a way which is popular the way in which this worldview that we have might be might be able to, like, su- uh, supplant capitalist realism. One of the phrases that Mark Fisher always goes back to is Margaret Thatcher when she said, there is no alternative. It became the phrase of neoliberalism. And I guess what I'm trying to do when I talk quite a lot, I come back to this notion of potentials a lot of the time, is an opposite to that, is to say, it's not that there is no alternative. In fact, there are infinite alternatives there are always alternatives constantly in everything on all scale of reality socially materially right up close on to my, what i'm looking at in the world in my immediate environment up to the sort of the global scale there are always alternatives and they are infinite and i think that's the kind of thing like when i'm talking about thinking metaphysically that can have an impact on how you act politically it can give you a sense of, oh, a way of reminding yourself that your actions do and can have impacts, particularly on when you're working together collectively, and that the future isn't written. It might be going in a certain direction because of the way things are, but it can be different. It can be made different. It requires us to act. It's not a foregone conclusion. And often, things do change very rapidly in ways that we couldn't possibly have predicted even weeks or months before. And I think constantly reminding ourselves of that is one one important way of avoiding that that kind of a destructive pessimism. I think certain forms of pessimism can be useful. It's useful to be critical. But it's not useful to be pessimistic in a way which stops you from being able to act, which makes, stops you from being able to act politically. So, yeah, thinking in terms of potentials, I think, is really important. And it's one, of the, it's one of the ways in which we're talking about the unseen beyond our immediate perceptions. That is something that doesn't require you to have a supernaturalistic religion or spirituality. It can be perfectly well integrated into a sort of a scientific rationalist worldview. And in fact, there are secular scientific people who do emphasize the notion of potentials. To stop thinking of the world just in terms of the physical world, first off, as just stuff that is there, that is finished, but to think of as equally real as the things that any object can do. The one I always like to go to is a bird. If I see a bird sitting on a tree, I know the bird can fly. It's not just a possibility it's something that is integral to the bird even though it's not flying at that moment and all of the objects around me right at this moment are doing something but they can do many other things and they're only simple objects this has got a pen a cup a biscuit they have so many things that they could do that they're not doing right now and if that counts for even these relatively immobile objects. It's even more so for the hugely complex systems that we are as human bodies, that we have as human systems. There are so many potentials constantly bursting on the surface, ready to happen, that we need to do, that we need to actualize. And reminding ourselves of that vitality of everything around us can be hugely empowering. And like I say, that then can then feed back into you don't just want to think about physical objects obviously that's just a way of practicing I think practicing a sort of a a habit of mind to remind yourself of the potentials of things but ultimately we do also want to talk about potentials on the global scale we want to talk about potentials of a country of a city and all these things that go much further beyond our kind of immediate environments but it's a way of basically a changing of mindset, which then changes our actions. And then those actions can feedback feed back into that mindset.
0: One of the things that's happened, I guess, a couple of times through the process of reading various different things for this podcast is that sometimes I wonder if part of the reason all this kind of amazing stuff turns up on paper is exactly because it's like a retreat. Because in real life, <laughs> everything's really <laughs> difficult and impossible. but On the page, you can dream, right? But... Yeah. In reading your book, you give a definition of r- what is real, right? Whether, whether something has an effect on something else. And you give a definition of reality, actual and the potential are both equally real. And I think that sort of answers some of that question that just because it's on the page doesn't mean it's impossible. That that it's a thought, it's, a, it's something somebody's worked out, it's maybe something people then discuss, and then it becomes the thing. And that's part of the creative process as well. There is something that doesn't exist, there is a nothingness, and then creativity creates something out of nothing. And that potential is an infinite source of inspiration, I think.
2: Yeah, and I think there's something that often gets missed by the left, particularly when it dichotomizes materialism and idealism. Those two terms have so many different definitions, even as it is, it gets a bit confusing, but it often seems to boil down for people this idea that, oh, it's not ideas that change the world, it's action. And there's a u- there's a usefulness in that. It's useful to say, oh, you can't just sit there and write, people have to do something. But we can't forget that ideas also structure actions, and, and actions feed into ideas. There's a dialectic between them. It's not, can't discount the motive force of ideas, particularly in helping people to do, to do stuff collectively it's funny when you hear marxists say that <laughs> because it's like you actually self-identify as a marxist there's a man who came up with these ideas that are structuring your actions <laughs> hundreds of years in the future and yet you're telling me the ideas aren't. Rev- it's not ideas that create revolutions clearly both it's clearly both in, in their interactions yeah so it is very important that we don't just have ideas on paper that aren't enacted. It is very important that we don't use spirituality to retreat. And it is actually a sort of a thing that allows us to enter into relations with people and to change things around us outside of our own bodies. But it's very important, I think, to integrate the power of ideas into social movements. And that's one of the things I think the term enlightenment is quite useful for.
1: I think that actual and potential is very important because it takes people away from being mired in the misery of their current reality. And the mass of Americans are not even going paycheck to paycheck. They're going emergency to emergency, which is a reality they're eager to escape. And so it's a very important promise that through connection and belonging, we can actualize a better society. People are aching for it here. So this is a very important contribution.
0: Yeah. Excellent. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Graham, sorry, I don't know if there's anything else maybe that you felt like you wanted to touch on that maybe we haven't covered in the time. Uh, no, to be honest, there's so much you can talk about, isn't there? It's, uh, yeah, it's one, true. One,
2: one, one of the benefits and the problems of the book is it touches on so much stuff. <laughs> you just don't know where, where to start talking about it.
0: I really think your discussion around... Systems thinking and processes, it's fascinating. It's like, I didn't know that the whole thing about birds having feathers for heat initially was like, what? And it's only flight that gets developed later. I can't remember, that had a particular term, doesn't it? Where something is designed
2: for one thing and then it gets used for another. Yeah, Uh, rather than adaptation, it's exaptation. So it's something that, it's a trait that kind of maybe came about accidentally, Uh, just through the random course of reproduction. And evolution always involves this aspect of some things happening randomly, a random differentiation. And then sometimes those things can appear and they just happened to give an advantage with maybe even it might even be like millennia in the future that it's just this thing that just happened to come come along with uh, with the evolution of a system then starts giving it these functions that there was never any it was never adapted for that purpose but it's just been lifted and now can have that and i think that is a useful way of thinking about I'm sure anarchists will be fond of that idea in terms of thinking in terms of revolutionary change because they're much more inclined to think about prefigurative practice. We actually start creating the organizations and the communities that we want now for the future. Now, there might be problems with that in terms of, are you ever going to be able to, what's the process going from, I've created my little community of 20 people to a global society? But I still think there's a lot in that, in that we do need to plant those seeds that can then be taken up, that can be accepted in the future into sort of post-capitalist society.
0: Yeah, and also it's that point that you made that because everything is hugely complex and dynamic, that, yeah, to quote, there is a universal bias away from conservatism. Because conservatism is trying to hold on to everything right and keep it in place, whereas the system we live in is continually shifting under our feet, so maybe the things that survive are the
2: things that are the things that are dynamic right yeah, and there's always a, there's always a certain need for certain things to be conserved. we need to have some kind of security in the structure of the world, but what conservatism tries to do is it has this kind of it tries to create this iron grip on and on, on just nothing changing basically and certainly not changing in any kind of pleasant way <laughs> and just the removal of all complexity and all dynamism and all change ultimately has to fall apart because you just a complex system's resilience comes from its diversity too much diversity and I'm not using the term diversity in just terms terms of identity I don't mean diversity of different parts and how they relate. <clears throat> Too much diversity, of course, you can't have a system, it would fall apart, it wouldn't be a system. But no diversity or like, crushing all diversity, it just means a system can't evolve. And it's interesting, but that might be a sort of a kind of a weird, sort of cold, almost sort of engineering way of thinking about it. But I genuinely think that there's an argument there on, on an ontological level, diversity is a, like a good thing. It's it literally. It's not even obviously. We have have all sorts of ethical arguments for diversity, but just purely in terms of a system surviving, we need it. And yeah, conservatism ultimately. The thing is, conservatism in the abstract, I think, will survive. But the thing that it claims it's conserving always will change yes. because it's always going to fail to and stop things try from to changing.
1: Hold on to it, you're really in trouble, which is what's happening with the US in terms of world hegemony and in terms of the MAGA movement of the Trumpist, as if to go back and conserve what's already gone is futile,
2: discouraging. Sort of a very, like an amusing, it's a very small example, but it was it amused me of contemporary conservative sort of commentators talking about oh the the collapse of traditional masculinity while wearing skinny jeans which 20 years ago were extremely right. unmasculate. And it's the perfect example for me that, like, conservatism only, it only actually used to exist by constantly changing the thing that it claims it's trying yeah. to stop from changing because it can't stop it. It can slow things. It can make people's lives a misery. It awesome. can do all sorts of things. It can have great violence, but it simply will not stop systems from changing. It will always fail.
0: Yeah. It's fascinating. Thanks very much for your time.
2: Thanks, much for having me
0: on. It was very enjoyable. Yeah, I I really got a lot from the book. I thought it was awesome. Massive thank you, as always, to our VIP patrons. Rebecca Johns, Bruce Rogers Vaughan, Alexander Lashley, Sheena Belmus, Seamus O'Connell, Alex Placito, Alexandra McCormick, Wig Shaker, Elizabeth McKechnie,
2: and Sean Vernado. By the way, listeners, if you have enjoyed anything you've heard Harriet say in this program, you will definitely enjoy Capitalism Hits Home, which is a solo program that Harriet does through Democracy at Work, which is a worker-owned cooperative that produces other great programs such as Economic Update with Richard Wolff and the Anti-Capitalist Chronicles with David Harvey. I can't recommend enough that everyone also listen to Capitalism Hits Home if you enjoy It's Not Just in Your Head.
0: And if you want to hear even more from Harriet, check out her radio show, Interpolis personal update on WBAI and in the WBAI archives.